Let's go over to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, where we were last week. We're going to finish up this section in the chapter. Last week we kind of uh, introduced ourselves to the basic themes in this portion of John chapter 2 and thought about a lot of things with it. I'm going to do a little bit of review for where we were, and then I want to go a little bit deeper into some applications. Uh, Really, in essence, every one of the applications I'm going to try to draw out of this could be a sermon of its own. There's a lot of information here, um, but uh, we'll get through it today. It, this is an important section in the Word of God, and it's, it is one of those passages in the Gospels that is just striking. It's sobering. Almost like no other passage in the Gospel that we read when Jesus makes a cord of whips, and He drives out the money changers, and He drives out the livestock from the temple that had been brought in for the Passover, says, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. And it stands in stark contrast, as we've already noted, with the wedding at Cana, where Jesus had just been, and we see an amazing act of his kindness in turning water into wine, and helping this couple out of a very difficult situation. And now he goes to the Passover. He takes matters into his own hands. And he overturns these tables. This causes us to think about some things. Let's go into the text. Um, After we read the text, we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll study it together today. Father, I pray that as we study your word, you would open our hearts that you would impart to us your word in such a way that it would be living and active in our life and it would transform and it would change us. Some of the things we come to terms with in this chapter today are a little bit difficult for us, a little bit difficult for us to grasp. Lord, I pray that you would give to us your spirit in a way that he would give us grace to receive and understand these truths. And so I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the Passover of the Jews here in chapter 2 and verse 13. That is at hand. When Jonathan read to us in John chapter 6, you also see that it is another Passover. There are three Passovers that are mentioned specifically in John's gospel in relationship to the ministry of Jesus. This one, the one in John chapter 6, and then also the one at the end of the book or at the end of his ministry when he is crucified. So the Passover of the Jews is at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He comes into the temple. He comes into the court of the Gentiles. Remember, the the temple complex is kind of a massive thing. There is the inner courts where there was the holy place, where there is the altar and the laver. There is the lampstand, the table of showbread. Then there is the Holy of Holies where... There is the Ark of the Covenant and, and, and the Shekinah glory of God rested there in His temple. And it is divided by a curtain. And of course, you remember me with me that when Jesus dies, when He dies upon the cross, the veil of the temple was rent. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The Spirit of God tore it apart to show us that now access is open and we can come freely to Christ because the atonement has been paid. 
But he comes into the temple, and as he comes into the temple complex, as the first place that he would come as he comes into the portico would be the temple of the gent or the, the, the court of the Gentiles. And then there was the court of the women. And then the holy place, where the priests would come and would do the sacrifice. And he comes in to the court of the Gentiles, and that court is full of buying and selling. There are sheep, and there are oxen, and there are pigeons. There are tables where there are money changers. And you remember we talked about this last week. Many of the two million pilgrims who would come to Jerusalem would come from other parts of the Roman Empire. And when they would come, they would bring with them their own coinage from wherever they lived. And when they would come to the Passover, they would have to trade that in in order to pay their temple tax, which I think was a half shekel of silver, and they could not pay it with a Roman coin. So they would exchange it. And there was no set exchange rate, and there was much extortion, and there was much corruption. And this was going on right in the temple courts. And it is bringing disrepute upon the name of God, and it is destroying His temple among the nations. And so Jesus acts... And it tells us in the text, he makes a whip out of rope, out of cords. He drives them all out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen. He pours out the coins of the money changers and he overturns the tables. He specifically tells those who sell the pigeons. Now notice this again, we mentioned this last week. If you were poor and you could not afford a lamb, you could buy a pigeon. And there was a substitution there. And so there's some exploitation of the poor going on here as well. And specifically, he directs his words to those who were selling the pigeons, who were exploiting the poor, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. And so his disciples remembered, it was written in the Psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. When it's all done and it's over, the Jews come to him. This is not the Jewish people per se. This is referring to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders obviously are upset. And they come to him, and they say to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They really want to know, what is your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, three days I will raise it up. This is the first prediction of Jesus' death by himself. It's early in his ministry. His ministry has just kicked off. This is a reminder to us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to die for us. He knew he would die for us. His hour has not yet come, but he knows his hour will come. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years for Herod the Great to build this temple. Remember, this is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's Solomon's temple, the temple that he built in the Old Testament, was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then there was another one built after the exile 
But it was kind of a puny thing. And then Herod the Great comes along and he just completely renovates it and he makes it one of the really magnificent wonders of the ancient world. And it took 46 years to accomplish this building. And these guys say, what do you mean it took 46 years to build this building? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now notice verse 23 to 25. And these are sobering verses. These are almost more sobering to me than what we have read when Jesus makes a whip and drives out the moneylenders. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, remember we were talking in our catechism about what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's a play on words in those verses. It said, many believed in Jesus, and then in my Bible, in the ESV, it says, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. That word there, to entrust, is the very same Greek word as is used in the previous verse talking about faith. So what John is telling us here is this. There were many people that were believing in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them. There were many people who were trusting in Jesus, but Jesus was not trusting them. And then I got to ask myself, what does that mean? They saw the signs that he was doing, and they were amazed. And they believed in him. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? In a way that Jesus doesn't believe in us. And what does it mean to believe in Jesus in a way that we are eternally saved? Now, it's very interesting. From this point on, going into the letter, we're going to see the word believe, 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 time and time again. We're also going to see Jesus revealing this truth that he knows exactly what is in man. So in the next couple of sections of the book, the first thing we're going to see is Jesus knew exactly what was in Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader. Everybody would look at that guy and they would say, that is a holy man. He is a righteous guy. And he comes to Jesus. He has seen Jesus do many signs. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I want to know who you are. No one could do these things unless God was with them. And what did Jesus say? Right away, out of the gate, because he knew what Nicodemus needed. He didn't answer him with intellectual arguments and say, yeah, I really am the Messiah. And you know it from this part of the, of, of the book of Isaiah. He didn't go to any intellectual arguments. What did he do? Right out of the gate. Unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. He knew exactly what was in the heart of Nicodemus and what Nicodemus needed to hear. He then goes to Samaria. And the Jews and Samaritans kind of had this thing between them, didn't they? They kind of hated each other. And Jesus goes to the well and he meets a woman there. 
And in conversation with her, he says, you know, if you will drink of me, I will, I will be springing up in you to eternal life. Put your faith in me. Believe in me. And she gets into some intellectual arguments, and then what does Jesus say to her? Go and get your husband. Go and get your husband. And the elephant in the room, all of a sudden, boom. And Jesus reveals he knew her, and then what did she say about him at the end of it? Come, she goes into the city after really receiving Jesus. She goes into the city, and what does she tell everyone in the city? Come meet a man who, tell, who told me everything that I have done. Come meet a man that told me everything that I have done. You see, Jesus knows exactly what is in the heart of man. Now, let's look at the chapter. My title today is Going Rogue for Jesus, and right away you're wondering, what in the world are you talking about? Last week we studied the text. Let's just make some deeper observations about four things. Number one, let's talk about the feasts again. We talked about Passover. I want to just elaborate on that again for a minute. We also briefly raised the question, when and where is it permissible for a believer to make money off the faith? Because I think that is one of the applications we would see here, right? These were guys who were saying in the temple complex, you know, we are actually meeting a necessary service. We're doing a good thing. We're facilitating people to worship. They can come from Tyre, or they can come from Parthia, and they don't have to bring a lamb all that journey. And when they get here, we'll just make it convenient. We'll sell it right in the temple courts. What we're doing is facilitating their worship. It would have been very easy to justify it that way. And yet Jesus says, no go, guys. No go, guys. So when and where is it permissible for a believer to make money off of the faith? You know, is it okay to have a bookstore in your foyer? A cappuccino machine? Amen? Only if it's free. That'll bring people in, right? Come, come to EBC and get a latte. I'm dropping a hint to all the elders out there, see? We're going to be doing a budget session soon. I'm just joking. But when and where is it permissible for a believer to make money off the faith? Ah, here's a good one. Was Jesus modeling for us vigilante justice? Is he telling us it's okay to go rogue for Jesus? To see injustice in the world, to make a whip? And to deal with it? Is Jesus setting that kind of example? We look to the example of Jesus in many things in the Gospels, don't we? And we say we should be like Christ. So when we see injustice, should we go burn down an abortion clinic? Should we take it into our own hands and act? Why or why not? Let's think about that for a minute this morning. And then let's think about signs and wonders and faith. And let's think about true faith. So we got kind of a big list there, so let's get moving. Remember, there were four major convocations of Israel. All of them are predicated upon the Jewish Sabbath. I don't want to go back to everything I talked about last week, but let's just think about what they were. First of all was Passover. This is the beginning of the year. It is the start of the Jewish year, and it commemorates what event? The coming of what? Israel out of 
bondage in Egypt. That is what Passover does. So in March, not March, Easter's in April this year, so we're going to have on Friday night, Good Friday, we're going to have Christ in the Passover. We're going to celebrate Passover together. We'll think about all the lessons in Passover and how it relates to what Jesus did in bringing us out of bondage to sin. But nevertheless, we see Jesus going up to Passover. This is the start of the Jewish year. It is in the spring, not in the winter. Like an hour start of the year is in January. The next feast, after 50 days, is the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, is when what happens? The Spirit of God comes in a powerful way. And that's all there again, fulfillment of prophecy. And we're not going to go back through all that today. Then there's the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement is all tied into that. And then we have lastly in the year, in the Jewish year, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And Tabernacles celebrated the wilderness wanderings. So it was a week-long campout for everybody. You had to stop what you were doing. You built a tent in your backyard out of limbs and branches, and you lived out in the field for a week. And when you were doing that, you were remembering that the children of Israel once wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. There were also lesser feasts that are attached to these that we looked at, and they all supported the agrarian cycles of planting and harvest. So you have unleavened bread, you have first fruits, you have the fulfillment of the barley harvest. You also have ingathering in the fall. And all these feasts were part of the celebrations of Israel that celebrated redemption and ultimately pointed to Christ. And all of these feasts are a shadow of the good thing that was to come, which is Christ. Now, there are also other feasts that Jews celebrate. And they're not on this list. One of them is a feast called Purim. Remember that? The Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim was not commanded in the Torah. It is added later. It's called the Feast of Lots. It is in commemoration of what happens with Esther and Haman. Um, And it is during the time, it comes out of the time of the exile and the dispersion. You remember the book of Esther and what actually happened there in that account. Uh, The Feast of Purim happens, I think, this year on March 7th and 8th. So it's coming up real quickly for the Jewish people in the Jewish calendar. That is the Feast of Purim. So it was not commanded in the Torah. It was added later. Nevertheless, it is an important feast in Judaism today. What's the other one? Nobody's thinking. We actually just had it. Hanukkah. Remember Hanukkah? Now, we don't do Hanukkah. We do Christmas. But it's really falling at the very same time of year. And it is the Feast of Lights. And it comes out of the Maccabean period or the intertestamental period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it was about the time of the Maccabeans and how they drive the Greeks out. They once again... Uh, purge the temple, and they dedicate it to the Lord. So many times it's also called the Feast of Dedications. I'm not going to go into that, but I wanted to make note of that because we talked about all these different feasts. Let's move on, and we're done talking about feasts. Now let's think about when money. 
I raised that question. We talked about it some last week. There are lines we should be careful of as believers when it comes to profiteering off the faith. Now, we talked last week, and I mentioned this. I do not believe it is wrong for a Christian to make money off of the intellectual property of books or music that they may do for the Lord. Okay, now that's not wrong. That's intellectual property. So, so, so a believer writes a book and he sells it. That's not what we're talking about here in this text. But there are lines that we should be careful of, isn't there? With exploiting the gospel for personal gain. Um, there are commands that we must obey that are in the scripture. And there are also issues of the heart that we must guard against. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it talks about teachers who were supposing that godliness was a means of great financial gain. And then he goes into that whole section where he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. And so there are issues of the heart that we must guard against. But, and, and we talked about the general rule. The general rule is this. Freely you received, freely give. Which means this. This is why Jesus is incensed at these people. This is why Jesus, there again, he is not in a rage. He didn't lose his temper. But he acts, and he acts very decisively. And the reason he does so is these people are really clouding the lines between the truth of God, which is this, and the gospel. You cannot buy eternal life. You cannot buy it. It is free. Freely you received, freely give. You cannot put a price tag on the gospel. Jesus paid it all. And so it is free. So freely you received, freely give. You know, one of the things that's been interesting to me, and I think Matt and I actually talked about this, is we, we've been rubbing shoulders with guys in the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association over the last several months as they've been thinking about getting ready for the upcoming crusade. And they've been flying guys in from North Carolina and from back east, and a lot of guys at various times, putting a lot of time and effort into preparation for classes in the region. And they've put up a lot of money to do so. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really has impressed me about the organization is this. They have never asked for a dime. Period. They have not asked for a dime. In fact, we had a dinner up in Jackson with a bunch of them with some other pastors. And there were several of these guys that had flown in. And they took all us pastors out to lunch. And when we got done the lunch, I kind of pulled the one guy aside and I took out my church debit. And I said, I'm going to pay for the meal. And he looked at me and said, no, you won't. It's on us. And he said it with such authority, I said, okay, I'll put my credit card away. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there was no arguing with him. It was like, no, this is on us. And, and I said, you know, you guys are coming here to bless this area. We want to take care of you. And he said, well, there'll be time for that later if you guys want to help with expenses with all the crusades. Well, you know, whatever. But freely we received, freely we're giving. That impressed me. I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of ministries through a lot of years of ministry. 
And a lot of times the first thing in the negotiations about somebody coming out the gate, the first thing in the negotiations is, what's it going to cost? And how are you going to pay? And that hasn't even hit the table yet. That impressed me. I will say that. That impressed me highly. Let's move on and think a little bit deeper about some other things besides just money. Ah, let's think about this one. Was Jesus acting like a vigilante? So let's talk about vigilanteism for a minute, and let's think about some things related to this. You know, a study like this, when we read this, when we read what Jesus did, makes a whip, turns over the tables, runs them out, A study like this, I think, can appeal to the more militant among us as a justification for taking situations in hand and saying, I'm going to set this right. Jesus sees an injustice, and it is a real injustice, and Jesus acts. But is that the way Jesus would have us as children act? And why was it, if not, then why was it okay for him to do this, but it's not really okay for us to do it? And is there any other places in the New Testament where we could think deeply about this and say, well, how did the apostles deal with it? Now, there's a couple things that I would mention. Jesus does this. Do the disciples help? No. In fact, I imagine they stood there in awe. Like, wow, what was that? Jesus did it. It is a unilateral action by Jesus. So the question is, would it be wrong to do something similar as just a normal believer in Jesus when we see injustice? Now, what is a vigilante? Let's think about it quickly. What is a vigilante? A vigilante, when we use that word, is someone who kind of takes it upon himself to fix a situation. He sees something going wrong, and he's like, this is not right, and I'm going to deal with it. And so he steps into it, and he takes it upon himself. Many times, there's also anger and vengeance that is a part of the equation when somebody steps out and acts like a vigilante. A vigilante has no proper legal authority. No proper legal authority. Another thing that a vigilante does is he skips due process. He becomes the judge, the jury, the executioner in whatever he's dealing with. And it is also always limited by his knowledge of the situation and his personal notion of what is right and what is wrong. And so when someone acts as a vigilante and they take it upon themselves to seek to rectify an injustice by kind of acting outside the law in order to do so, in trying to fix an injustice, they actually become unjust. Now, there's a lot of places we could go to think about this. We could go to Romans chapter 13. We could talk about governing authorities and how they are given the sword. 
But I think one of the important things for us to think about is the reason Jesus did this was actually to assert that he had the legal authority to do it. It was what? His house. It was his house. And he had the legal authority, and he is showing his sovereignty over the temple, as it says in the prophecy that we looked at last week in Malachi 3. The the messenger of the covenant will come quickly to the temple, and he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And so he is fulfilling that prophecy, and that is why this is such a creation of like, what are you doing? Do you have the authority to do this? But Jesus is not acting as a rogue vigilante who just sees injustice and he's just going to fix it. No, what he is doing is he is showing the people of his day and even us today as we read the scripture that he is sovereign over his house. It is his house. And so he acts to cleanse his home, his temple. It is important we understand that. Jesus' action does not give to us the right to take situations into our hands and to just, you know, and not that Jesus was being violent here, but for us many times it would fall down into violence and to say, I'm going to fix this. Um, Jesus obviously was moved with indignation when he saw what was going on. It's interesting, there's another times in the scripture where one of Jesus' followers was moved with indignation. And his heart was stirred within him. The Apostle Paul is at a place called Mars Hill in the book of Acts. And he sees idolatry. He sees all these altars and all these temples And it tells us his heart was stirred within him. Did Paul say to all his followers, like Timothy and Silas, tonight we're going to come back to the the Areopagus and we're going to knock down all those altars to those false gods? Is that what he did? No, what did he do? He was moved with indignation, and you know what he did? He went up there and he sat down And he taught them. You see, the authority that God has given to us as children is not to take matters into our own hands to try to cleanse things and to rectify injustice. The authority that God has given to us as children is to take the word of God and to teach it in situations when there is injustice and to confront the injustice with the word of God, not with our own actions. Our own actions always just cloud it. Our own actions bring actually dishonor on the cause of Christ. It's always a dishonor on the cause of Christ when a Christian says, I'm going to fix this mess. I'm going to take it in my hands and I'm going to do this. And what happens? The whole thing blows up and it's in the news and it's a bunch of garbage. But when a Christian sees injustice, maybe it is racism. And he goes and he takes the word of God and he stands and he teaches this is wrong. And he proclaims the word of God in that situation. God is honored by that. 
And so it's very important we understand this. You know, with Jesus acting as a vigilante, uh, they were exploiting the poor. There's no doubt of that. But Jesus was not simply acting to rectify that injustice. He was seeking the honor and the glory of his Father. And so he cleanses the temple. Now, let's think about signs and faith. We're moving along. Ah, let's go down in the text. In the text, the Jews say to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, remember the word sign. There are three words in the New Testament that speak of a miracle. One is the word miracle or a dunamis, a power, a mighty act of God. The other is a wonder. Sometimes it's called a wonder. And that is just talking about what happens when a miracle happens. Everybody just is in awe or in wonder. It is a wonder. And then there's also the word a sign. That when Jesus did a miracle, when the apostles did a miracle, they were doing a sign. It was there to confirm something about who they were, that they were a spokesperson for God, that Jesus is God. He has the ability to do a miracle, and he is revealing that, that he is God in the miracle. And so it is a sign. And so they see these signs that he is doing, and they come to him, and then they say to him, so give us another sign. Give us a sign that you have this authority. And he doesn't do a miracle. He just says to him, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. They don't know what he's talking about. Actually, that is one of the things that is brought up at his trial as a reason that he should be crucified because of what he says here. They say it took 46 years to build this temple. Can you raise it up in three days? He's speaking about his body. Then we get down to verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus didn't trust them. Because he knew what was in them. Now, one of the questions that I bring to this thought is, you know, why are signs sometimes spoken of in the Scripture in a favorable light as contributing to somebody's faith? And then at other times, a sign is spoken of in a negative light as being an obstacle to someone's faith. So look with me just in the Gospel of John. Let's run through this. Look in, we just read chapter 2, verse 18. We read verse 23. Go with me now to chapter 6. Now, Jonathan read this this morning, and I want to draw our attention. This is why I had Jonathan read this in the Scripture today. It tells us in verse 2 of John chapter 6, there was a large crowd that was following him. Why are they following him? Because they saw the miracles that he was doing. They saw the miracles that he was doing, and they are following him. In John chapter 2, there are some who are believing in him. Why are they believing in him? Because they saw the miracles that he was doing. And then down in verse 14, after feeding these people with this small lunch that the boy has, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they see this miracle, 
They said, this is the prophet who is to come into, wor- into the world and perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, what did Jesus say? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go knock down the Romans. What did Jesus say? Bye-bye. And he just kind of whisks away and he leaves. Because he sees that there was a duplicative motive in what these people are doing. But then if you go over to chapter 20, go with me to chapter 20. We looked at this at the beginning of the study. In John chapter 20... The scripture says this in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. Okay, so Jesus did a lot more miracles than are written here. We don't have a mention of them. But these ones are written, why? Why are these miracles written down? So that we would believe. So what is he saying there? He's saying, in this case, there are miracles that are recorded that Jesus did that contribute to our faith. Because it shows us that Jesus had the power to do these things. But then there's also this truth that we see here that many people saw these miracles and it doesn't contribute to their faith. It becomes an obstacle to their faith. So what does this tell us about signs and miracles and faith Uh, Let's think about this one first of all. Here you see it in a positive light again in Acts chapter 14. The same thing happened in Iconium. They go into a Jewish synagogue, this is Paul, and they speak in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up and poisoned the mind of the Gentiles against the brethren. So they stayed there for some time. They spoke boldly in reliance on the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace. How did he testify to it? By granting that the apostles could do signs and wonders. There we see it in a positive light. But then look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees come to him. They say, teacher, we want to see a miracle from you. It's kind of like what Herod does when Jesus comes to Herod, remember that? And he had been at Pilate, but Pilate didn't want to deal with it, so he says, I'm going to send him over to Herod. And Herod's like, ooh, ooh, maybe he'll do a miracle while he's here. Okay, so they, you know, teacher, we want to see a miracle. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what's the prophet Jonah sign? For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And then he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation. Now think about what he's saying here. These are pagan Assyrians. And he's speaking to Jews. And he says, those pagan Assyrians are going to stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's what? At Jonah's miracle? No, at what? Jonah's preaching. Jonah preached, and it's a short sermon, and it gets their attention, and they repent. And look! Something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, this is Queen Sheba from Ethiopia. 
Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment. It tells us she was born again. She will rise at the judgment with this generation and she will condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to do what? To hear. To hear the wisdom of Solomon. She didn't come to see Solomon do some miracle. She came to hear. Now, there is a truth that I want to draw out from this text. If you look back at it, he says, when they ask, would you do a miracle? He says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. He is not there saying they are evil and adulterous because they want a sign. He is saying this, they are evil and adulterous in their heart. I'm not going to do a sign because that is what they are. They are demanding a sign from me, but they are evil and adulterous. Their heart is evil. I am not going to increase their condemnation and their damnation by doing a miracle that will only damn them deeper. They are evil and they are adulterous. I will not do a sign. So, now, when we think about this, let's bring it together. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says this, where, or chapter 1. Where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the, wis- the world's wisdom stupid? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through its wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what? The message that is proclaimed. Jews ask for a sign. Paul is obviously referring to Matthew chapter 12. The Greeks are looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That is a stumbling block to the Jews because they want to see a show. And it is a foolish message to the Gentiles because they want something that's erudite and wise. The message of the cross is simply this. Jesus died for your sin. Trust in him. And that kind of brings us to this concept then, I'm going to go on, of true faith. We believe in Jesus. Jesus doesn't believe in us. Have you ever heard the foolish malarkey sometimes? Where somebody says, oh, God's really believing in you. You know, he, he, he just, he believes in you. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He knows you. He knows me. He knows I'm a ruined sinner. He knows my heart is deceitful above everything else that it is. You know, I got kind of some good parts in my heart, but above everything else that my heart is, it is deceitful and it is wicked and it deserves damnation. Jesus is not trusting me to save myself. Jesus is not trusting me to put my trust in him. Jesus is not trusting me to keep on believing in him. That's why he gave me a spirit. Jesus doesn't say, you know, 
You're not going to be able to pluck yourself out of the Father's hands. No, what does he say? No one can pluck you out of the Father's hands. Why? Because Jesus doesn't trust us. We trust him. Now, he does entrust things to us. He entrusts to us the gospel. And it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful, trustworthy. But the important point here is this. Jesus doesn't trust you. You trust him. When I read this, my mind immediately jumps somewhere else in the New Testament. Jesus knew what was in there. And my mind jumps to another very scary passage at the end of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus at the judgment and there's people before him and they're saying, in your name, we did wonderful works. In your name, we did this. In your name, we did that. And he says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. By every appearance, they believed in Jesus. By every appearance, they were doing everything that God required of them. By every appearance, they're in the church. They probably come in a three-piece suit, wear wingtip shoes, carry a big study Bible. I didn't know you. I didn't know you. Why didn't he know them? Because they were trusting in what they did, not in what he had done. They were trusting in what they had done. In your name, we did all this stuff. I never knew you. We are to believe in Jesus. As we get into chapter 3 and we talk about being born again, we're going to see this repeatedly. John chapter 3, 16. It's at every Super Bowl in the end zone, right? God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But we have to wrestle with what does it mean to believe in Jesus. It does not mean to just know in your head certain things from the Bible about what he did and who he is. It means to entrust yourself completely to him and to throw yourself completely upon his grace and upon his mercy and to trust in him and him alone for your salvation. So that's where we go. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus. Jesus knew what was in the Samaritan woman. Jesus knew what was in the guy's heart who was laying on the blanket by the pool of Bethesda. And we'll see all these stories. And he was not believing in them. But some of them truly believe in him. And they are saved. My friend, he knows what's in your heart. And he's calling it out. And he wants you to turn from your sin and to turn to him. And to truly believe. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, our salvation is not dependent upon our ability to keep it or to do anything. Lord, you come to us and you save us.
It is by grace that we are saved through faith. Help us, Lord, to truly understand this, to rest in it. And so I pray in Jesus' name.